0: This guy had rolled a tar truck and the cab of his truck was flooded with this super hot tar and he was seventy percent, I think, seventy percent third degree burned. Um, had inhaled some of the tar. He was totally awake, which was oh my God. bananas, right? So
1: here Meet Dave trying- Dasty. He's to- a member of our paramedic education team. The team consists of highly skilled and qualified educators. Who deliver and coordinate training by using a combination of instructor and self-led learning, practice lab sessions, patient simulation, online learning, and clinical placement. Our educators operate a medium and high fidelity patient simulation center, which provides paramedics with an opportunity to perform and practice high-risk, low-frequency skills. The Patient Simulation Center is used in all aspects of training, in addition to our aeromedical theory course. In this episode, Phil Kim sits down with Dave Dassey to discuss his career in paramedicine and how it has helped inform the way he trains Orange Paramedics today. I'm Rachel Scott. Welcome to Orange Pulse.
0: My name is David Dasty. I'm a uh, critical care flight paramedic and a paramedic educator. I've been with Orange since, um, or Air Ambulance, since 1999. I actually didn't really consider paramedicine in general until uh, I was well out of high school. Um, I had been, uh, kind of really didn't know what I wanted to do and thought I'd spend some time working. And as I worked my way through kind of some various positions, I found myself working as a as a PSW or healthcare aide at the time, and through a variety of connections, ended up getting interested in ambulance, going to school, and then kind of going from there. So I didn't actually go to school for paramedicine until I was, I think I was 24, 23 or 24.
2: Hmm. And what do you think changed then, like when you were 23 or 24?
0: I just realized that uh, number one, the the, the, the job of uh, of a PSW is incredibly difficult, um, and really not something that I want to do uh, for the rest of my life. And I found that the uh, the energy behind uh, paramedicine was really exciting, and thought, oh, you know, I'm, I I like healthcare. Um, I was originally interested in nursing. Um, and then decided that, uh, that paramedicine would be a, a good way to kind of keep the, the energy level up, uh, for the job because it's, you know, it's emergency work and, um, and get into the medicine side of it as well. So
2: it seems like all your career and educational path, like you've been heavily involved with healthcare, like what personal tie or draw do you have towards healthcare? I,
0: I don't,
2: I don't think that there was
0: anything that made me decide, oh, you know, I need to be in healthcare. I just thought that, that. Uh, you know, there wasn't some personal moment where I've, you know, I had a crisis or I had something that happened to me. I just decided that uh, I enjoyed working in or working in healthcare in general. Um, I had, uh, you know, always found the field interesting and it was kind of a mix of science and kind of hands-on stuff. Um, And then really decided that the, the paramedicine Side of healthcare, the emergency side of healthcare was really kind of what captured my interest because I found that I didn't have to spend a great deal of energy holding interest, my interest on one thing for long periods of time. The the paramedicine, you you your short bursts of really intense work sometimes, and and I found that very interesting. You can go from from doing uh, uh you know. Uh, assisting uh, an, an elderly person um, on a, you know, just by transferring them from a, from a nursing home to a hospital to delivering a baby to, you know, doing a resuscitating a, a, you know, somebody who's died like that. It's just, it's very interesting uh, and, and very varied. The, as I got through, as I went through my training for the primary care paramedic, um, I ended up developing an interest in in the air ambulance and the critical care paramedicine side of things just through a, a family connection and then um, and really decided that that I wanted to be on the that kind of the cutting edge if you want to call it that of 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 paramedicine. I wanted to be as advanced as I possibly could be and do as many things as I could. So
2: so you're a flight paramedic. Right? Correct. Yeah, by trade. Yeah. You right, are in the
0: So I, right now I'm not practicing uh, because I'm in the education department um, and that's, mm-hmm. I primarily train them, but that was my, that was my role prior to transitioning to headquarters was, uh, was, yeah, it was flight. So I did uh, seven years on the fixed wing in Timmins and, you know, kind of moved around a little bit. There and then did um, three or four years on the uh, helicopter in Toronto, and then moved into an education role in uh, in the office.
2: And so, from those years of experience in flight, um, are there any sort of like stories or anecdotes or experiences that sort of stand out to you, even to this day? You know, it, it, <laughs> there are so many. I think the ones that really
0: kind of um, the, the things that you remember uh, for me, anyways, were are, are the firsts. Um, I, you know, a call that stands out was a was a pediatric um, sepsis case that ended up, uh, you know, unfortunately, passing. Uh, that was a really that was a defining moment. It was something that had never happened to me before. I think the, the hardest calls are not necessarily the most traumatic for me. Um, they're not the 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 most um, exciting calls. Um, but we're call the calls that I remember are, are ones that. You know something could have been done differently uh, prior to we- us getting there um, th- that may have changed the course of somebody's
2: uh, uh, some- somebody's life or death for that matter so do you take that with you when it comes to uh, developing training modules and education plans?
0: you're always trying to teach people to not have to learn the hard way and so there are there are things you know everybody let's say you know makes a medication error, so the goal then becomes. Well, I would prefer to not have you make that the the same mistake I made. Um, And uh, perhaps, you know, that mistake was made because I didn't understand something fully or I didn't um, wasn't aware of a a more efficient or or better way to do things. So I think that that's where not only do we have to we have to like a, a core set of criteria that we have to teach to. But then on top of that, when I'm when I'm especially when we're doing simulations and stuff i try to make sure that that people aren't stuck making the same mistakes that i made you know when i started out uh, so that they don't have to they don't have to you know suffer through the uh, the 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 difficulty that that can ensue afterwards
2: so when it comes to putting these simulations together do you typically tend to go based off like Personal life experiences and personal experiences that you've had on the job.
0: I think that there's a little bit of A, a little bit of B, a little bit of C. So I think what you do is you, you, you. Number one, we try to base the majority of our simulations on, on actual calls, um, and so we'll look for calls that are difficult or, or not even difficult, but the calls that hold the core competency that we're looking to teach. So if I'm looking to teach you how to intubate, um, then I'm going to find a call in our system where the patient required intubation and we start off, we'll start off with a, you know, this is a simple call that, that, you know, requires an intubation and, and the patient gets much better. Um, And then you go to, well, this is a, yeah, the patient requires intubation, but it's a little more difficult to do. So, uh, you know, based on maybe an anatomical uh, issue or, you know, maybe there's some trauma. And we try to scaffold that, that difficulty paramedics gain experience in the simulation environment so that when they finally get to see a patient, uh what are they've seen a bunch of these kind of simple and more complex calls uh, throughout their their training and they're a little more prepared to deal with the real life stuff we'll take calls that you know like i don't i use calls that i have done because again some of them are, are fantastic they're like they're incredibly difficult calls so um they and i learned something from them so there's something in there to be learned um and then sometimes, yeah, you make stuff up. I mean, you're not, and it's not, um, you know. We used to make up these crazy, complex calls that would never happen. Um, and what we found was that it, it, you know, yeah, the the paramedics did fine with it, but they, but it actually it stressed them out so much because you're you're dealing with a, you know, a traumatic, pregnant delivery and then once you resuscitate the baby now the mom starts to die and it's just it's too much you can't you can't um effectively teach or really even evaluate somebody when you when you overload them with complexity so um and, th- and frankly those calls don't really happen that frequently right we don't see a lot of the you know everything that could possibly go wrong under the sun has gone wrong or gone wrong with this patient
2: mm-hmm can I ask if it was like ever fun to come up with those scenarios?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. It's fun to come up with those scenarios because you, you know that you're gonna watch somebody sweat, and 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 that's not necessarily again that's not. We used to do a lot of teaching like that, uh, but what we found was that it's really not effective. It's not really number one. It doesn't promote you know any real learning. Um, it really can negatively impact somebody's confidence, and when you negatively impact their confidence. Then they start to uh, then they start to have difficulties in other areas, and so what we're trying to do is we're actually trying to get them, you know, we're trying to prop them up and make sure that they are, when they come out on the other end of a course, because these courses are difficult, right? There's it's not just you don't just show up and as long as you show up, you know, put your hand up once a class, you're gonna you're gonna pass. They're they're difficult courses. Um, there's a lot to assimilate. There's a lot of information to uh, to synthesize and and then apply. So we want people, when they go out into the field, to be as confident as they possibly can be, um, and and overloading them with with these really kind of insane calls is not helpful. So you'll, you'll make up calls, though, where, you know, if you can't find a, uh, you know, an obstetric call that seizes with a delivery, um, you'll make that up, but you make them up in a way thats that, is, that you know, this is how they would present normally, not, you know, on fire and... and On
2: a bus that's driving off a cliff, like... Yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: Orange's education department is responsible for teaching the highest trained paramedics in the province. In order to maintain their certification, our staff are required to participate in continuing medical education, which includes mandatory, annual and medical training. Paramedics also take part in operational training, which has modules on subjects like the transportation of dangerous goods, underwater escape training, the use of new medical equipment and more. Now, back to Phil and Dave, who discuss the various ways our education department trains paramedics. What sorts
2: of training and teaching Methods do you have? So we have simulation. I'm assuming there's manuals and like classroom-style training. It's,
0: uh, it's interesting that you say that. we're actually transitioning right now to a, a slightly more internet-based or, or uh, remote learning-based format. But essentially, what we have is we have we have the theoretic or didactic learning that uh, that we get from textbooks and uh, classroom instructor-led classroom time. We have video conferences regularly where we're doing one or two kind of lectures via the internet um, so that not everybody has to congregate. We record them so that people can, uh, can watch them. If they're out on a call and they're they actually unable to attend live, they can, um, they can watch it later and still kind of get the same information. We do come together once uh, for a week at a time on a regular basis to a practice simulation and be kind of spend a little bit of time actually with face to face contact with the with the students so that they can ask questions and kind of assimilate stuff that they 're really not sure about um, and then we have clinical placements as well so we'll actually we'll send the paramedics out into the uh, into the hospital environment so they can practice with an experienced provider so we'll send you out with a registered respiratory therapist, or we'll send you out with a physician or a nurse in an ICU somewhere, just so that you can practice doing some of the skills. At the end of it all, uh, we we put you into a uh, preceptorship environment where you actually get to practice the things that you're learning under a uh, under the kind of the, the eye of a of a preceptor.
2: Yes. I also heard that there are mannequins that um, vomit and talk to you and scream.
0: Yeah, they they can they can uh, they can do a lot of stuff. They can. They'll seize, they'll talk to you, they will, um, you know, if they're set up appropriately, uh, some of them can bleed, they can vomit, they can cry. Um, Some of them uh, will deliver babies uh, and and then the babies themselves will kind of, you know, uh, present an issue. So there's, yeah, we use a lot of simulated learning just so that the first time that you're doing a high acuity, low frequency skill, Uh, Like, let's say, delivering a baby or, um, you know, putting in umbilical lines on a baby, um, cutting the neck for an airway. Uh, That's not the first time that you've ever kind of seen this outside of a textbook. We'll, We'll actually have you
2: practice this stuff on a mannequin. Mm-hmm. And have you personally, in your experience, encountered those high acuity, low frequency?
0: Um, I have never had, to, thankfully, you know, you knock on wood. Uh, I have never had to cut anybody's neck for an airway. I have delivered some babies, and I think that uh, really, you know, you, you intubate, you've, uh, I've, I've put some needles in chests, um, that kind of stuff. But nothing, nothing that's gonna blow anybody's mind. I think that every paramedic, any critical care paramedic that has that's been practicing for any length of time. Um, mm-hmm. Has done most of the stuff that I've done, so uh, we see mm-hmm. a f- reasonable amount of acuity in the service the, provincially. So,
2: but what are some of the difficult aspects of putting together a curriculum for a job that requires such a wide variety of skills?
0: Well, it's. I mean, you could spend years and years and years training these guys, right? Because there's we we. The, you're right. The, the The variety of patients is really it's it's all of the patients you can see any patient Um, so trying to the hardest part i find is trying to narrow down the focus enough that it's actually meaningful and that you're actually learning something and it's and it feels like it's focused when you're um when you're when you're actually receiving the training Um, and that you feel like at the other end of it you when you come out you feel like you're prepared Um, at least to some degree my experience has been you can never train Critical care paramedics enough. It's just like there's always going to be something that they're going to come out and they will, they will go. Oh, you know, I've never heard of that or I've never dealt with that because we only have a you know we have a limited amount of time that we can that we can spend training uh, people. So what ends up happening is we try to get them to a baseline level of uh, of competence. We have a set of uh, competencies that we have or objectives
2: that we have to meet. Um, and so we try to tailor our, our our curriculum development around that. And so we've been talking a lot about technical proficiencies, but um, I guess when it comes to like soft skills or any sort of skills that come outside of that, what are some important things that you teach your trainees?
0: Obviously, compassion and empathy is something that we try to have people de- demonstrate when they're in their simulation and in their field placements because not only towards the patient because the patients obviously deserve that. But to the to the staff that you're working with, the, the, the sending facility staff that you're working with as well. Um, these people are usually dealing with an incredibly difficult uh, situation and they may or may not be handling it appropriately or as well as they could be. Um, and our job is to come in and, and support that and then increase the level of care. And so. When I started this job, when a flight paramedic walked into an emerge or an ICU, uh, people kind of backed up a little bit because they were they were a little afraid or a little bit you know reluctant to to interact with them because they weren't always exactly uh, approachable. Uh, you so so you would get people that would really difficult to deal with, um, and it creates a degree of animosity or fear when you're trying to to interact with them. Uh, so we try to train that out of people so that they realize that everybody in that healthcare team um, that they're interacting with has value and that, that, they are, uh, that they're all uh, people, right? They all have feelings and, and, and the best way to most effectively care for that patient is to kind of get everybody on board moving in the same direction. And so we want them to walk in demonstrating some professionalism and leadership as well as some medical acumen. Uh, I I think it's important that people appreciate what goes into being trained as a critical care paramedic. And and quite often you're looking at, you know, depending on the training model that we, we that we use and we, you know, we've varied between a couple of different models throughout the years, but you're looking at anywhere from 15 months to 24 months of fairly intensive training. On top of what you're coming into the uh, uh, into the organization with, and and it's there's a there's a high degree of difficulty doing what we do. We take a team, uh, you know, we take the care being delivered by a team of you know physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, um, and other support staff, um, and we deliver that care or better with two people and those two people are incredibly well trained. Um, and I think that there's a, um, I don't think that people don't appreciate that. Certainly not within the organization, but I think that it's important to remind people of that. Uh, it's, it's a lot of hard work being trained as a critical care paramedic, because you're also working full time while you're doing it. So, oh yeah. Like they're, they, they they they're working, they're working their job, right? So they're working their line or their position. And on top of that, they're doing, you know, what is equivalent to a post graduate graduate, uh, you know, a graduate certificate level program that, uh, you know, essentially using, you know, gets you to a, uh, you know, a bachelor, an honors bachelor level of, uh, of education by the time it's, it's all said and done. So, um, there's a lot of work involved and it's, and, and, and it's, it's, it's stressful for, uh, for the learners. So, I think that it's important for people just to kind of be reminded of that. It's also difficult to put it all together and, and to do it well. And I think that the team that we have right now is, is really working hard to make the courses as, as, or the program as good as possible and to really up the game a little bit so that we can start getting paramedics more interested in research and uh, kind of academia, which is uh, also important for progression of the, of the profession itself. I think that most I think that most of the medics are always up for the cool call, you know the the good call that's the the guy that's you know burned eighty percent of his of his body
2: um, oh yeah, wait, wasn't that a call you were on? Yeah, that was a call I did yeah, do you want to talk about that?
0: The burn in and of itself was you know I've dealt with burns, but the method like this guy had rolled a tar truck and his the cab of his truck was flooded with this super hot tar and, and this guy and he was oh, wow. trapped. And I think that what struck me was when we, you know, we landed and we landed in. It was in an off ramp. Um, we landed in a collector lane, and we were, you know, safely. Our landing area was well back of the accident. But when we landed, even as far back as we were, the tarmac or the asphalt on the highway was sticky. And as you got closer, the the. You know, it just continued to get hotter and hotter to the point where we left our stretcher sitting behind the ambulance, which was directly beside the, the crash site, and the stretcher actually sunk into the um, into the um, into the ground because the the tarmac was so soft or the the uh, the asphalt was so soft that uh, it was just you know like the weight of a stretcher you know 100 pounds would uh, just sunk it. And that guy was, I think he. What was he? He was seventy percent, I think, seventy percent third degree burned. Um, had inhaled some of the tar, you know, asking to to asking us to let him die. He was totally awake, which was, oh my God. bananas, right? So here we are. We're trying to we're trying to get this guy out of the out of the vehicle. My partner had to kind of get into the vehicle, and we had to cut the uh, like the headliner around because they, we couldn't. Every time you try to move this guy, all his skin would come off because because he was so badly burned, and we were trying to, not you know, scalp him scalp. essentially. Uh, when we were taking him out of the trucks, so we ended up taking the headliner with us because that was the one part that was that didn't want to come off, like where the skin didn't want to come off. So we wanted to try and preserve it, mm-hmm. but you know, trying to start IVs on this guy was impossible because of all the uh, because of all the tar. So we ended up having to uh you know drill into his leg with a uh with a an intraosseous uh drill that we use and uh like he was like yeah in a great deal of pain but when we popped this thing into his leg he was like oh my god what's that what are you doing you're breaking my leg and it's like no no we, we're we're trying to give you some fluid and give you some pain medicine okay. um and that that call like typically you when you when you look at mortality for these burns you just you know for a rough estimate of mortality you add their percentage of their body burned to their age so this guy was in his 50s um he was 70 percent burned so you know he's well over 100 um so we figured okay well he's gonna die and i'd actually heard that he did die you inhale liquid tar that's heated to 350 degrees fahrenheit you know like that's that does a number on you right so we figured i'll just make it as comfortable as possible and it was like oh, hey, this guy this poor guy was just i just couldn't imagine just the mm-hmm. uh just the just the heat like walking up to the scene it was unreal i've, I've never experienced anything like it and those are the things that help strengthen you both you know as a clinician and and mm-hmm. and they help strengthen you mentally when they especially when they go well and it allows you to kind of manage the ones that don't go well because that could have easily been a a horror show like it was a horror show to begin with but i mean it could have easily gone terribly badly For this guy and then you you think okay well could i have done anything different um and and in this case you know we did everything uh, i think we did everything right so we had a very small part to play in this guy's recovery he ended up surviving and like he was the the medical staff at the burn center you know they saw him as a miracle because this guy should never not only should he not have lived but he should have been completely disabled and he wasn't like, you know, he, he had some, he had some, uh, some deficits, but, um, so he lost, you know, a couple of fingers and, uh, and, and you know, uh, you know, a whole ton of surgeries and grafts and stuff like that. But he ended up meeting someone, marrying them and, uh, adopting their kid. And he was, uh, and he said, you know, it was a day of rebirth for him. It was, it was something that, uh, that he wouldn't change because, he, you know, he was, he was just, uh, you know, if that had never happened, he never would have had what he has now. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that make it worthwhile. There's a, I don't know if you know, there's a, uh, there's another fella named Anthony Liu. Um, he's a, uh, a motivational speaker, uh, an Olympic, uh, Paralympic hopeful, um, but he it was another patient that, that we carried. And this guy was a, um, he was working in a scrapyard and they they um he was moving a a vehicle to be crushed and somebody dropped like a five or ten ton magnet on him to to move the vehicle and they broke his spine and again this is a guy that you know you think okay well this this guy's gonna be it's a life-altering injury um and they don't always do well not not physiologically they live but you know it's 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 hard on your head when you when you do that when, you know on your psyche uh and this guy has gone from you know he's he's an athlete he's now um, paraplegic and now he's you know he's right back up there and he's he is a um you know he's motivational speaker he's a, a paralympic level athlete um that, those are inspiring those are things that's when you know i did something good Today mm-hmm. so those yeah. are the things that make that job worthwhile. Again, I want to reiterate that that the education team works really hard to get everybody the experience that we think they need and that they deserve and, uh, and it's important that the you know people outside of the the, the, the learner sphere, you know so the the support staff, Know that we really appreciate everything that they that they do for us to help us uh, you know, get that job done, and and it's important that the that the, the learners know that it's not easy to get them to that spot, and we and we work really hard to make sure that it's a good uh, a good experience for them.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by Orange Air Ambulance, and this episode was produced by Rachel Scott. Philip Kim, and with support from the wonderful staff on Team Orange.